Naaman is one of the <clears throat> stories of the Old Testament that I remember from growing up. I cannot remember whether it was in school. I imagine that it was, or in Sunday school. But for some reason, long before I moved from a, a deeply seated atheism to a belief in Christ, I do remember this story of Naaman. And yet, as I've sat in it over the last week, it's great. It's a movie. If you're a filmmaker, then this is a film to be made. We just go over what Jude Pat has read to us. Here's Naaman. He's an influential man. Um, <clears throat> um, he's way up in the army of Aram. And interestingly, in the reading, if you were spotting it, uh, they were enemies of Israel. And yet it says uh, he was a great man on the side of the master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Oh, that's an interesting theology to look at at another stage, maybe an Old Testament evening for 50 minutes or so. That's not what we want to get into, but we want to see who this Naaman is. He's held in high regard. He probably had his knighthood in Aram or the equivalent of it. But he has this leprosy that Paul has been talking about earlier in the service. And that's a devastating illness. Well, actually, we're not sure that it's leprosy. Jesus is the one who in Luke chapter 4 suggests that it's leprosy. It was a skin disease of some kind. It's a pretty hopeless situation he's in. Enter this little slave girl whose name we don't know. And we probably don't know her name because she was probably the lowest on the rung. This little slave girl who was probably told by her parents the way my parents said to me, little girls should be seen and not heard. If this little girl had been seen and not heard, then Naaman was in real trouble. But she was heard. And she goes and she speaks to Naaman's wife and suddenly Naaman is listening to her because he's desperate but why would he listen to this little girl but he's desperate and so he goes to the king and the king's all for it the king's really willing to do something about it for some reason the lectionary readings leaves out verses four to six no understanding of that nor is any of the commentators that uh, I looked at the lectionary with suggesting why but uh, if, you, if you'd read that basically the king of Aram a bit like uh, what happened to Nehemiah when the king got him a load of stuff to take through um, to when he was going back to Jerusalem. Sort of these things that you could get. They didn't have passports, so give a load of stuff. And uh, lots of gifts, lots of nice things, robes and things, which came in handy a little bit later on because when uh, uh, the, the king of Israel got the letter, he tore his robes. So it was good that Naaman had brought other robes that he could get into, etc., etc. Anyway, the king likes him enough to send him off with these letters and these treasures. And he comes to the king of Israel who's thinking, this is some trick because they're going to wipe us out. I'm not going to be able to heal this guy of this disease. What is going on? This is a trick so that when I don't heal him getting all this treasure, I'm going to get slaughtered by the king of Aram. But then Elisha somehow hears about it. Somehow hears about it. We're not told how he hears about it. Maybe it's just on the news. Did you hear the king's ripping his robes because this guy has come down and he wants healed and who's going to do that? And Elisha says, send him off to me. Now here's the best bit of the story for me. It's that kind of humorous thing. It was on Bruce Almighty last week. It's a bit like a Bruce Almighty. You can see this happening where Naaman strolls up, or doesn't stroll up, he comes up with all his chariots and all his armed officers and this real kind of 
big procession of people, very, very important, just like a president's coming to Belfast or whatever else, and, and they arrive up at Alicia's door. And Alicia's probably living in some hovel somewhere because he's just a wee prophet and he's not really living in the royal courts or anything like that. And this huge procession comes up to where Alicia is. Alicia doesn't even come out. He doesn't even come out. He sends a messenger out. It's like the president arrives at your house and you sort of send a text from inside saying, Ah, it's nice of you to call. Go and do this, but I really don't have the time to come out and talk to you just right now. You can understand at that point that Naaman is getting a little bit frustrated and is a little bit angry about all this, and then he's told to bathe in the Jordan seven times, which doesn't seem to him to be very appealing when there are better rivers where he's from. But somebody convinces him to do it, and he gets healed. And interestingly in the story, which takes us back into the leper story that we read earlier, he returns to give thanks to Elisha. Now what's going on in that story? Well it seems to me, and can I say that all week I've got to this point in the service, and I've said, I'm going to have to say this again, and they're going to say, Stockman, you're saying that every week at this point. But it seems to me that there's something about the lectionary readings that you cannot avoid saying this again at this point. This is an overthrowing of the caste systems of the time and our time. This is God turning upside down the way we see it as being. And that has come out time and time again over the last few Sundays. But this guy is really important. And this wee girl should not be heard. But it's the wee girl who should not be heard. She's a girl in a male-dominated world. She's a foreigner in a foreign land. She is young. She is a slave. She holds no power, no prestige. We don't even know her name. But somehow something that's gone on within her tells in faith something that in a brief encounter, as John Kirkpatrick was talking about last Sunday night here in the welcome area, Everything snowballs from this person who's seen as a nobody in the world's eyes, but becomes the trigger of miracle of the prophet in God's eyes. It's turning everything upside down. And then Elisha, what a nerve, what a cheek, what a lesson. The prophet's actions again participate in this biblical theme of overturning the expectations and the thwarted pride of the world. And if you're looking at Naaman's story in that way, of this turning over of the systems of the world, of the lowly becoming, of the first becoming last and the last becoming first, which is another mantra that goes on, certainly in the Gospels, there is no better place to look than Luke's Gospel. And we've been doing it the last number of weeks. The prodigal son. He was the one that deserved the judgment. He was the one that got the party. And the one who had been faithful it seemed. Was the one who was lost at the end of the parable. The shrewd manager who realised. I don't need to be looking above me for security. I need to be looking below me for security. And I need to get friends with the guys. That are going to look after me in the future. Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man with all that he had. Is the one who gets lost. And Lazarus the one who had nothing is the one who finds himself with all the glories of eternity. 
Jesus is constantly in, or Luke is certainly recording that Jesus is constant about this turning over of the way the systems of the world are. And it happens again in the healing of the lepers. There's ten lepers. And the one that comes back is the Samaritan. And again in Jesus' stories, the Samaritans become important because the Samaritans were the enemies of the people that he had come to, that he was one of. And Jesus is again turning upside down the way that we would perceive the world. The people that we would perceive that we should be going to, the people who have influence, all of this stuff is being turned on its head. One commentator said the story draws, the leper's story, draws us to two important themes right the way through Luke. The first one is Jesus care for the marginalized. That's happening all the time in the Gospels. Jesus care, Jesus' compassion, like a shepherd has compassion for those who are lost. Jesus' compassion for the marginalized right through the Gospels, but particularly the Gospel of Luke. And then this Samaritan thing that's constantly there in the Gospel stories. The second thing that's also on the, that's, uh, happens all the way through Luke is an appropriate response to Jesus from the shepherds who respond to the songs, not with the fear they had when they saw the angels in the first time, but when they go down and meet the baby Jesus and they praise God and they head back to tell them all the wondrous stories that they've seen that morning or the wonder of the story of Jesus that they've seen that morning. This is glorification right through to the thief on the cross, not the thief on the cross, the, <clears throat> the centurion at the cross who looks up at Jesus and recognizes Jesus and says, surely this is the son of God. There was always recognition and some sense of glorification and thanksgiving of who Jesus was in the gospel of Luke. But what I want to get us to very quickly and get into communion from this is that the Samaritan because of his thankfulness, because of his attitude of gratitude, got more than the other nine. Because of his attitude of gratitude, he got more than the other nine. Now, it's an interesting story because if, if we look at, at Luke's account of these, uh, of these lepers, Jesus says to them, <clears throat> go and show yourself to the priest. It's almost like, go and bathe yourself in the Jordan seven times. This is what they seem to have to do. But on their way, it tells us, they, get, they know they're cleansed. The cleansing happens. And so it seems from the story, it seems from the story that the tenth one, the Samaritan one, doesn't get to the priest. He comes back to Jesus. As soon as he knows all is happening, he's on his way back to Jesus because there's something going on with him that says, my word, what has just happened? Who was that? There must be implications to this. I need to respond to this. I do need to give thanks, but there's something else going on in the Samaritan's spiritual journey at this point. The thankfulness and the gratitude that he feels sends him with a peripheral vision to see other things. The others do their religious duty. And they get healed. The Samaritan... Ah, well, the religious duty's kind of flexible. 
And he comes back to Jesus and finds more. As Eugene Peterson puts it, your faith has healed and saved you. And let's see the King James of that, because what the King James says is your faith has made you whole. Because the Greek word here is healed, made well, saved, made whole. The Samaritan, forgive me for saying it on 9.10, but the Samaritan gets 10.10 because of his need to give thanks to God. Because of his attitude of gratitude, because of his need to go back to Jesus, because of his peripheral vision to see that there's more happening here and there's something about this guy that seems to be more incredible and I want to go back to that, he gets this 10.10. If you're a visitor among us, forgive us. That's a bit of our logo. It's life in all its fullness. John chapter 10 and verse 10. This is what wholeness is. This is what Jesus ultimately came to bring us. He came to bring us wholeness. There might be moments when we find healing. There might be moments when we find he sees our way through things or guides us. There might be moments when he answers some prayers. There might be moments when we feel that he has saved us. But what he's really came and what he's really about is to make us whole. The way we were originally designed to be. Human beings at their best flourishing. Life and life in all its fullness. And the leper gets that because he wants to be grateful. He has an attitude of gratitude. And he sees this peripheral vision that goes back and asks some more questions. Or at least tries to see what's going on underneath the surface of the healing. Peripheral vision. I love peripheral vision. Johann Cruyff had peripheral vision. David Silva has peripheral vision. Footballers, Paddy Jackson has peripheral vision. Bet Ewan McMurray has peripheral vision. It's the footballer or the rugby player who sees the whole pitch and knows where to play the ball at the right moment because somehow out of the corner of their eye they're seeing more than what's in front of them and you know what I would love you all to have is peripheral vision in the Malone Road or the Lisburn Road or I'll tell you the best place to have peripheral vision just across from Queen's University's main building there's a situation there where people are coming up Elmwood Avenue and you're coming down the Malone Road or you're coming up University Road you're on University Road at that point you could be coming either way. No, you couldn't. You want to be coming down the Malone Road from where I'm coming from. So you pass Methody. You're coming up to the university. The university's on your right. The student union's on your left. And Elmwood Avenue's just in front of you there. And the lights have turned red. Now, what do you do? Have you peripheral vision or you just see what's in front of you? The lights have turned red, so we'll cross that box. I don't even think there is a box. I'll just cross there, and I'll, I think there is. You just park over on the other side. Because if you have peripheral vision, you'll see the line of cars at five o'clock that's coming out of Elmwood Avenue. And you'll say, I'll stop here, actually. Because if I stop here, I'm going to give those cars the chance to clear that log jam and get out across this. Because the lights are only footlights, so they're going to change very quickly. And if everybody just rushes right across during the red light, there might not be enough time to clear that. That's peripheral vision. I want to know how many years of my life I'm going to sit at the top of Myrtlefield in Maryville because drivers don't have peripheral vision. Peripheral vision. 
seeing more than that's in front of you. Nine of them didn't do wrong. They went to the priest the way Jesus told them. One of them saw more was going on. And they came back with the attitude of gratitude and got wholeness. It's not too far for me to move that to here today. If we move that to here, there we all are. We're all returning. We're all coming back around this table. And can I say that if you're a stumbler, tumbler after Jesus, then this is an open table and you will be welcome after the next time to come to this table. If you're in the gallery and you want to come, please come down and sit with us. As we come around this table, this cross, this sense of resurrection and hopefulness, Jesus saying, you do this, you remember me. If we come with an attitude of gratitude, do we? Or do we just come like we're heading to the law? Oh, can I tell you also, you might have noticed and we haven't told you, and please forgive us for this. Sometimes we know things and we think everybody knows things and they don't. We have changed communion Sunday to the second Sunday in the month. That takes time to filter in because I was at fault. So we come once a month. Do we come by the law? Are we coming like the nine other lepers? Ah, it's second Sunday in the month. Ah, we'll come around the table and ah, I'm sure Steve will do a good job around that and, and people will give us, and that's nice to get the bread and the wine. Or is there something peripheral going to happen in the next 10 minutes? Whereas we bring ourselves back around this table with an attitude of gratitude, with a sense of thanksgiving for what Jesus wants to do in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, that he wants to give us more than just that surface, that thing we're looking straight at, but give us life in all its fullness, wholeness. Then this week I've been sort of surmising that maybe those of us who have most gratitude and most of an attitude of gratitude will be those who will have the joy deeper within us to deal with all that life might throw at us. I'm not sure about that. I just surmise it. But I want to ask you, the people you know that are most thankful, the people that you know who have most gratitude, the people that you know who have that sense deep within them, are they the ones who actually have a lighter spirit, who have a more helpful spirit, who have a more selfless spirit. As we gather around this table, let's imagine we're the leper coming back. Let's imagine we're naming and we've just been healed. Let's imagine that something significant has happened. But as we come back to the table, our peripheral vision's asking, who is this? What is this? What's our response to this? And what might be God's response to our response. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your table with an attitude of gratitude, Lord, we ask that you would give us those peripheral questions that we wouldn't do it just out of ritual or liturgy or law, but that we would do it to ask who this is, what this is for, and what does it mean for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.